in one of my big themes and all the time, and I've been here, it'll be 11 years when I leave in, in, in June, um, has been about change. You know, asking questions, asking what the, what, it, what, what the right thing to do is, look at things through the lens of the public interest, look at things through the lens of access to justice, look at things through the lens of uh, equality, diversity and inclusion, look at things through the lens of Indigenous peoples and are we doing the right thing? Look at it through the lens of the, the law students who are the ones who are struggling and need the most help or the lawyers who need the most help because all of those things are the ways in which we meet the public interest. Welcome to Of Council. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. In this episode of Of Council, we're joined by Paul Shabis, the treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario. Now sitting in his final months as the elected head of Ontario's governing body of lawyers, Paul reflects on his past two years in this role, as well as what the future may have in store for him and the society. His term has brought with it notable changes, including a change of the Law Society's name, an implementation of a statement of issues to reflect lawyers' commitment to diversity in the province, an extension of the LPP program, increased enforcement of improper lawyer marketing, and much more. In addition to his role at the Law Society, Paul Shavis is an accomplished media and litigation lawyer at the venerable Blake's Law Firm in Toronto, a law professor at the University of Toronto, and an active volunteer in the legal community. In 2011, Paul was named one of Canada's most influential lawyers by Canadian Lawyer Magazine. Learn why on this episode of Love Council. Well, the treasurer is an anachronistic term. Let me start with that. It's, it dates back to the Middle Ages that the head of each of the inns of court was the person who collected the money and was called the treasurer. And so when our law society was created in 1797, they decided that the head should be the treasurer. So I, I, the statute now actually provides that the treasurer is the president and the head of the society. So um, so away from the, the nomenclature, I'm really the president. Mm-hmm. And what that means in an organization like this is that I'm more akin to a chair of the board. Um, we have a large board. I'm one of the elected benchers. And uh, so I oversee the policy uh, and direction of the organization. Um, the CEO of the Law Society, who's a full-time uh, employee, it's a big organization, reports to me regularly. Um, and I deal with... Um, the leading of the board of the organization. So I'm kind of like a chair of the board. So what changes, because you were obviously a bencher um, mm-hmm. before you became right. treasurer, uh, what changes in your day-to-day from bencher position to treasurer? And, and just a, an addendum to that question, do your duties or projects that you were working on as a bencher at the time, do they carry on over or are they delegated out? So the benchers are, uh, that's another old fashioned term. The benchers mm-hmm. are the directors. Um, you think of a corporate board, you have directors and you have a chair of the board. Uh, the benchers are all in our case, however, elected by the profession. So we've got 40 elected lawyer benchers, five elected paralegal benchers and eight appointed benchers. And the benchers have varying um, obligations. They are to attend the board meetings. They're to participate in the committees that they're appointed to. Some of them will chair committees and sit on working groups. Uh, many of them will sit on our tribunal and deal with discipline cases. So the, ver- the responsibilities of the benchers varies depending on what responsibilities are given to them by me as the treasurer. And so what changed when I became the treasurer was I stopped sitting on most of the committees and <laughs> chairing committees uh, other than the main committee and a couple of uh, committees that uh, the treasurer would want to lead. And I 
provide direction to the committees as to you know what what I would like to see them achieve. And, and you, um, like all your uh, predecessors, are a lawyer who's come now as treasurer with a great deal of experience and expertise. And as all preceding members as treasurers or leaders in their field, you in particular uh, have expertise in constitutional law, media law, and I wonder. Uh, what do you feel that you brought um, in your significant, either whether it's purpose or viewpoints, uh, from your expertise to to your term as treasurer? I think what I brought as a bencher, and, and I've really tried to carry through as a as a treasurer, is a commitment to improving the justice system and to being open and transparent. Um, years ago, when I really st- started to move beyond practicing law and getting involved in other uh, justice organizations um, that included constitutional organizations, partly related to my practice as a media lawyer, but also uh, issues around access to justice. And um, I felt very strongly that we, as a profession, have to work harder to improve access to justice. And so um, I got involved with Pro Bono Ontario when it first started, and I was a director of that. I eventually became chair of that. One of the things that I Early, took on early in my time as a bencher, was being a, a co-chair and chair of the Access to Justice Committee. And I was appointed to the Law Foundation of Ontario, which is a wonderful organization that, of course, provides funding to legal aid and to all sorts of innovative access to justice groups. And uh, I, was a, I became the chair of that about a year and a half or so before I got elected treasurer. When I became treasurer, I had to give it up. And I did it somewhat uh, with some regret because of all of the really interesting connections one makes and the projects that one can promote uh, in that uh, position. Do you feel that your um, past um, successes in media law has uh, given you a certain perspective on the importance of media and particularly as it relates to transparency? Because it seems as though that's something that may get lost on people who are not in the, the day-to-day. I imagine dealing with uh, publishers and, and, and seeing firsthand as a lawyer and litigator uh, how important it is to have transparency within society and then trying to move that into the law society. Um, what uh, what sort of, um, I guess you could say, tools have you tried to implement uh, that you may have learned as a litigator? Um, well, there are, there are tools I've learned as a litigator and, and as a, a lawyer representing the media, too, which is, uh, and I, I really have tried to work hard on that in, in my role as treasurer. Uh, the, 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 you know, historically and, and many people's gut reaction is when the media are calling, um, you know, ooh, we better not talk to them. This is going to be bad or they're writing, they've got their, there's a negative spin on something that they want to get. Um, and, and, you know, I know from, from my work as a media lawyer that while, you know, there may be something that's driving the media to ask questions, you're, you really better get out in front of the story and you better be more open and, and responsive to stories so that your side of the story can get out. And uh, I think in the past, the Law Society suffered a number of times by, by us effectively burying our heads in the sand and not wanting to speak. And so one-sided stories would come out that would be critical of us. We would have lost the opportunity to explain what we were doing and lost the opportunity to have more balanced and and more informative stories better better stories for the public when we all when we all speak and uh, you know the other thing that of course happens when you don't speak is it just breeds more suspicion um, about what you're doing why is it you're not willing to speak or why are you holding those meetings in secret um, I've said repeatedly to people around here, and I think you know many of them get it. Uh, don't uh, don't get me wrong. I don't think there's been a great deal of resistance to it once once people stop and think about it. But when they say, um, "Let's do this," but you know, let's keep this quiet, or we we don't really want this thing to come forward, I've really taken the opposite view and said, "Well, if, you know, why do you why do you think that? Um, because if you're doing something you don't want people to know about, do you, I think you should ask yourself why you're doing it." Um, because why should you be afraid to tell people what you're doing? And I think that's a, that's something that I've really tried to instill uh, here at the Law Society in my time as as the, as the head of it. Um, and it's something that I've learned as well just from working with the media and seeing how people have been hurt, even my clients. You know, I don't always act for the media. Sometimes I act for the other side. And I, right. I say to people, you know, they're they're asking these questions. You better respond. It, it's... 
it's very rare that the old no comment um, is a good answer to things. And I think that we're all better off for those kinds of things. Um, you know, I mean, people have said there's been a lot, of, a fair amount of controversy while I've been the treasurer because we've taken on some tough issues. And I, I'm really quite proud of that because I think some of those tough issues were issues that, that in the past might have said, that's a tough issue, let's not do that. Um, you know, or we're going to get some criticism, we're going to get some flack for doing this or saying this, but it's the right thing to do. Um, it's the informative thing to do. And it's, uh, you know, we are ultimately the uh, guardians of the public interest in the legal profession. And so we want to, we, we need to be more open. And as you say, you know, especially as you sit in hallowed halls and um, with the law society and the terminology that's used with benchers and treasurers, I think it's hard for um, society as a whole to sort of understand that and opening up these lines of communication is obviously an essential step towards that. And But I have to ask, though, with uh, the way media has been moving over the past five years, particularly in the past two years, with the immediacy of the story and well, that's 240 characters or less. But um, how does the Law Society or what efforts have been made to try and keep up with this highly reactive news uh, uh, news flow? Well, um, you know, we're we're reacting as fast as we can, like everybody else. Um, we're active on social media. We're um, I'm active on social media. It's it, I shouldn't take all the credit. Often people tweet for me, but. Uh, we're we're trying to be as uh, as attuned to the the news cycle and the immediacy of, of news as everybody else. Um, we're you know one of one of my big projects over the last few years, and I started this a few years ago when on, when I was on the Access to Justice Committee, was uh, the need for us as the Law Society to communicate better with the public because I don't think we've done a good job of that in the past and. Uh, we felt that we should be better known. It's it's in the public interest to know what we do and that we're here to serve the public. We're here to be a, a source of information for the public about law and lawyers and paralegals, about how to access legal services, about how to find the right legal services. Um, and also when things go awry, how to complain, who to complain to when you're not getting the services that you should have. And I don't think we have been... Uh, uh, very good at that. And so one of the things that we adopted in our strategic plan three years ago was to enhance our communications with the public. And when I became elected treasurer, I followed through on that. We retained a consulting firm. I struck a steering group of benchers and staff to uh, uh, look at what we were doing and what we weren't doing. And of course, one of the first things that we learned from the consultants when they went out and did some surveys and randomized surveys, both of the public and the profession, was that most people don't know much about us. Many people have misinformation about us. And one of the most interesting things, and I didn't anticipate this, um, was that our name's a problem. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we were called, and we still legally are called, the Law Society of Upper Canada, which is a small colony that ceased to exist in 1841. And um, many, many people don't know what Upper Canada is, or means, I should say, or was. Um, and so it was misleading as to who we were, and it connoted certain ideas of old-fashioned Canada. Um, we heard from people that it connoted a sense of elitism, of removal, uh, and uh, our consultant's advice was, we can show you the data, but you should change your name if you want to enhance your communication because your name is a barrier. May I ask, you know, I have to say it was encouraging uh, for me because I, as someone who's active on social media myself, when I saw you became elected uh, treasurer, um, that was encouraging because I've always felt the same thing that the consultants seem to have suggested, that there needs to be these openings of communications. And um, I have to ask, since you've... Um, obviously implemented a lot of these changes and, be, and open these communicative um, channels. Have you personally noticed um, dialogues opening, uh, maybe directly with your account, but also with the Law Society and even engaging in discussions that may not have otherwise been had? I think, you know, the, the name change is the very first step of a much bigger, broader communication strategy that we're now implementing. Um, but I think many people recognizes, recognize that it's much more than just window dressing. It's, it's, it, it, it may seem symbolic and a little thing to change your name, but I think it's really been a very significant 
shift in thinking. Uh, I think it's been a significant shift in thinking by the benchers, many of whom have been around for a long time and um, many of whom were uh, very resistant to it over the years and yet ultimately embraced evidence-based decision-making and most of us supported it. And I think the profession uh, too. We knew the profession if you just asked them, because we did this a year and a half ago. We we did a randomized survey and asked the profession what they, whether they liked the name or not, and half of them said keep the name and half of them said didn't. But I think when you then go out and tell them what the public thinks about the name and the problem with the name. I think most of the profession have now gotten on board with it too and, and appreciate that this is important for the profession and the future of the profession. I mean, to me, it goes actually to the heart of us maintaining our position as a self-regulating profession, mm -hmm. which is that we have to move and evolve with the times. Right. Because if we don't, we will lose that right. So on that, and this, I'm a bit fascinated here with our discussion about social media now, because as you're saying things, a lot of other things come to mind. Um, with uh, the use of social media and perhaps even through the discussions you've had with consultants, um, what are some key pieces of advice you would give to lawyers who are trying themselves to engage in communicating the public, um, not just through business, but also in trying to uh, let the public be aware of perhaps uh, social initiatives that they're taking? Uh, what advice would you give them? You know, um I, I'd probably give them the advice that I think I need more of, which is be more active mm -hmm. uh, on social media, um, uh, be more connected, follow more social media, and actually do things. I mean, I, I tweet from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, other people tweet for me too, but when I engage in tweeting, and I've been doing more of it myself lately, um, I'm interacting more with different people. And I think you know that's what we all need to be doing more of. This is the, the way of the future, um, certainly the way of the present, who knows what the way of the future is, but uh, um, uh, social media is uh, something that I think uh, we all have to engage in. I'm not sure whether we should be doing it through Facebook right now, but <laughs> given what's just happened, but uh, you know, we have to be wary of, of social media as well. But uh, look, uh, the whole way in which we're communicating is changing, and you know, I'm very conscious of that in the news industry because you know I have clients that are big newspapers, and I've I've been seeing the enormous change and the enormous challenges as the news, you mentioned the news cycle, but the, the news delivery methods are changing and what people are reading and where they're getting the news from is changing, has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you, you raise some very interesting points and perhaps even obligations for lawyers, because essentially at heart, we are communicators, we are professional communicators and um, among other things, but that seems to be primarily what we're about. Um, do, do you do you feel that some lawyers will refrain from engaging in uh, communications like this out of fear that the law society might come in and, and get them in trouble for it, through whether it's because they're advertising improperly or whether they're just too loose on Twitter? Um, well, I hope not. Um, you know, I mean, look, we're lawyers and, you know, nobody should be engaging in misleading advertising. Um, we all, I think, want to maintain a certain uh, level of decorum so that we don't, you know, bring our profession into a, a state of disrepute. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, I mean, people should be using whatever means they can. I think everybody should, you know everybody should be careful. I mean, as I tell uh, young lawyers in my, in my firm, if, you know, when they write an intemperate email or letter and I say, you know, you, you know, before you send things like this out, why don't you put it in your drawer overnight and, you know, have another look tomorrow and, you know, you, you tone certain things down. So I think, I think that's just good advice for everybody. But, you know, certainly, um, you know, we've been looking hard at a lot of our rules around advertising. We've had some challenges over that in the last year or so. And I think we've, we've with respect to specifically advertising, I think we've uh, really responded with appropriate restraint. We saw some problems with exaggeration, misleading testimonials and things. And, you know, that didn't really call us to revamp our rules. It just really called on us, I think, to provide a little more direction, a little more guidance. We're doing some enforcement that, you know, uh, I think was called for. Um, but a lot of uh, the complaints and a lot of uh, what we do in our, our, what we call our regulatory division, um, 
it really involves resolving things a little more quietly and you know pointing out to somebody where we don't it's not in anybody's interest for us to go ahead with some discipline case to say you know I think you've got to show a little more judgment here mm-hmm. um, let's let's be careful on some of these things but um, we certainly don't want to be heavy-handed and and uh, and chill communication so um, sort of moving off topic a little bit but still involved um, I wonder, you know, having the broader perspective of where the law society looks forward in five, ten years and where the practice of law is going, uh, what advice would you give lawyers who are trying themselves to advance their business or even adapt to present changes in laws that are in the practice of law rather that's coming um, so that they're aligned with the law societies and I'll use a couple examples like um, do you see the law society becoming more um, uh, encouraging of technology and we've already talked about communication and are there other things that that you think lawyers should have on their own horizons at this point in time? Well, you mentioned technology, and, and I mean, technology is huge. I mean, I think anybody today starting in the practice of law has to harness technology. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, uh, it, it, there's just so many efficiencies to what we do. It's how we all communicate. You know, the fax machine has now become, you know, something that's sort of an anachronism. And I remember when we first had fax machines, I remember, you know, the miracle of seeing this thing roll <laughs> off the machine over a telephone line. Um, but, uh, you know, technology is changing very quickly. Artificial intelligence is the new thing. I've spoken a few times now about artificial intelligence, not not because necessarily I wanted to, but because I was told you better go to have these talks and then I'd get briefed. And I mean, it's remarkable uh, what's out there already as far as um, uh, artificial intelligence that can take data, take information and come out with predictive results um, that can do research for you, uh, that can look at facts, find weaknesses and things. And we're going to see more and more of that. Um, for sure over the next five to ten years and and lawyers have to know how to use it uh, because I suspect in a few years if, if lawyers aren't using it people will actually start to call them out and say why aren't you using these tools because these are good tools uh, better tools than your own research your own experience um, because there's so much more uh, in the data that that we can access so um, both harness technology and, and stay ahead of the game at the, tame, at the same time, I really worry, though, about, about losing the human part of it. Because, you know, 20 years ago, you'd say to any young lawyer starting out, say, find a mentor. You know, have someone you can talk to. Have someone that you can learn from. You can go and watch, do cases, and bounce ideas off of. I think that's just as important as technology, and it's just as important today as it was then, because we have to remember who we are as a profession and you don't learn that from a machine absolutely and on the topic of mentorship and perhaps maybe this is a bit of a two-way street because um, where I've seen the most um, reluctance towards uh, adaptation or adoption rather of technology is with older lawyers and very set in doing things a particular way whereas with younger lawyers um, the intuition is technology and they're quick to adopt um, technologies that may seem very counterintuitive to uh, older lawyers. So I wonder, um, there is certainly uh, a disparity right now of the benchers uh, with most benchers being older. Um, Do you see any room for that dialogue to be open within the benchers? And in particular, do you see room potentially for uh, a special category of younger benchers, maybe to start these types of initiatives to look forward to the future? Right. So you're getting at this whole issue around our governance structure, right? which I mentioned earlier, and how big we are and the, the problems we have. And, and we're looking at that. Um, and for sure, one of the issues we've had at the Law Society for a very long time is that the benchers tend to be um, senior members of the profession um, who may be not always, but maybe somewhat out of touch with um, what's really happening and the changes and the challenges that the bulk of our profession, who are younger, um, are facing. And uh, so we are looking at that. It's part of the, a broader governance review. Again, something I initiated when I got elected treasurer, because uh, it's something I've always felt strongly about, that uh, we need to examine our governance on an ongoing basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have particularly cha- particular challenges with our governance structure because of the historic way in which it's evolved. 
you know, 40 elected lawyers, five elected paralegals, eight appointed benchers from the attorney general. That's 53 people right off the bat. And then we have former treasurers and we have a category of life benchers, um, which we've grandfathered now, um, but many of them come. So uh, we're gonna have an election for my successor in about three months. And uh, there will be about 60 voters because there are a number of former treasurers who vote. And that's just how it is. Um, we are virtually unique around the world. And we know this because we've looked mm -hmm. in the size of our board and the cumbersomeness of a board that size. And so we're examining governance much more broadly um, around what is our role, you know, because we have a debate about are we directors or are we more like a parliament? I mean, I think we're more like directors and I think that's where we should be. We have a highly professional staff um, that should be doing the operations and, and bringing things to us as a policy board, but there is still that debate. And then there's the question of, are we too big? And if we should be smaller, how should we be smaller? How should we be more representative? And there are some models across the country. Manitoba's done a very interesting governance change in the last few years, which involves a, both a, um, a collection of both elected benchers, appointed benchers, and then further appointed benchers by those who are elected and appointed to make sure that they have um, a diverse representation and that the various constituencies that are important to have around the table are all there. Um, I think we have, uh, maybe by happenstance, we've achieved some of that already. We did have some governance reforms about seven or eight years ago. We brought in term limits mm -hmm. so that benchers can only do three terms. Still a long time, 12 years. Um, and we've seen just by the nature of the profession changing, where we are quite um, diverse in both, uh, we're very diverse in gender, we're about 50-50. Um, we have a, a, a fair amount of diversity among, we have in, a, an indigenous bencher, we have benchers from various backgrounds around the world who are visible minorities. Um, but, you know, we also have to think about representing the different voices in the profession as well. And I think that's a, another challenge that we have. Yeah, and certainly, in, you know, having that diversity uh, and perspectives is always going to be a valuable, a very valuable thing. And um, on that, I mean, uh, this, this particular term where you've um, uh, sat as bencher, diversity has um, something that has come and crystallized into some meaningful steps by the Law Society to try and advance uh, those those very laudable initiatives. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of that arose with a lot of controversy with the statement of principles. Um, and I, I wonder, um, you know, the, we're, the newspapers can only say so much about that, right? And obviously, um, controversy sells news. So uh, if, I, if you don't mind me asking, what is it that drove the statement of principles to come into power? And what are some of the benefits you've seen as, as a treasurer since it's been implemented? So the statement of principles is one uh, sub-recommendation among 13 larger recommendations from a report that we passed unanimously in December uh, 2016. Um, this was uh, in a report from a working group that had been working for four years on the issue of, and we called it the challenges faced by racialized licensees working group. And I think, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think it's important that that's emphasized because a lot of, when you read about the statement of principles, it's almost as though it was created by fiat overnight and it clearly wasn't the case. And Yeah, no, we, uh, um, this working group was set up several years ago and, and spent its first couple of years just doing research. Um, you know, we did, uh, we went out and did surveys. We went and gathered data. We did focus groups. We spoke to people. Um, I shouldn't say we. I wasn't on it, but uh, it was a it was a large working group of uh, a good cross section of of benchers. And uh, then they developed recommendations, but they they did them based on findings. I mean, findings which, to me, are um, unchallengeable, which uh, include that there is systemic racism in the profession, and it's a problem. Um, systemic racism is always a problem. And that's not to say we're calling people out as being deliberately racist, I always hasten to say. But... You know, we historically have been a rather elite white profession. That is clearly changing. I see it, uh, my call to the bar ceremonies, I see it in my own law firm, I see it in the law school where I teach, I've taught for many years, and, uh, and the profession is changing, but the profession is not changing 
um, as we go up sort of the ladder in the profession. And we discovered, um, and the evidence, I, you know, as I say, is really very clear, that if you are racialized, you have more difficulty entering the profession and getting jobs in the profession, getting jobs, whether it's in big firms or government or corporations. Uh, you may have challenges just you know getting into small firms too. People hire who they who they think is a good fit, things like that. These are notions that we've got to work on and get away from. And we also discovered that uh, racialized lawyers, even if they got in, didn't advance in, in the same way or to the same degree that they should have, again, because of the challenges of differences. And um, we think that's a problem because we're charged with governing, governing the legal profession uh, to promote the and have the best legal profession we can have to best serve the public in the public interest, and that means we want to have a legal profession that is diverse and more reflective of the population of an extraordinary diverse province. And so we we said we've got to do something about this. We when we see our licensees engaging, not deliberately, but engaging in practices that have systemic racist effects we want to fix that and so uh, the report and it took a long time and there was a lot of debate and, and there was a lot of compromise mm -hmm. to come up with all of these recommendations but you know they dealt with recommendations like better education um, raising awareness accelerating change uh, uh, gathering data measuring change and measuring progress um, one of then one of those was to say why don't we make, you know, we, uh, why don't we have everybody turn their minds to this once in a while? Because we have implemented some other changes, which we've had no pushback at all on. For example, a law firm of 10 licensees or more, so it could be a paralegal firm or a lawyer firm, these things apply equally, yeah. um, um, is to adopt a statement of principles and practices, a policy to combat systemic racism in their offices. Uh, next year, uh, firms of 25 or more are going to start gathering data and we're gonna ask them to report it, obviously subject to voluntariness, but you know, self-disclosure and so on. So this is sort of some of that empirical right. measurements that exactly. you're discussing to see if, exactly. if improvements are being yeah. made. No, no problem with this. We've instant, one of the other recommendations is that everybody's gonna have to do what we call EDI, CPD, those are two acronyms. Um, we have uh, compulsory professional development for lawyers now. You have to do, everybody has to do 12 hours a year of, of continuing education. Um, we've had for a number of years since we brought it in a requirement that you do a few hours on professionalism and ethics. And we're bringing in another one, which means that every three years you're expected to do three hours of equality, diversity, and inclusion training, just to raise awareness. And so the statement of principles was one recommendation that said, why don't we have everybody take a five minutes and draft a statement of principles that acknowledges their obligation uh, to uphold human rights laws and to promote diversity and inclusion. Um, I believe, and the working group, and I think convocation in, in approving it, not once but twice, because we debated it again this past December, um, believes that that is a pre-existing obligation that all lawyers have when they take the oath and are called to the bar to uphold human rights laws, to speak out if they see discrimination um, in their workplace or with their clients. And this was just a reminder to all of them to do that. And uh, it takes a few minutes. Uh, I don't see it as forced speech, which is the argument that many have put up and said it's Orwellian or that it's forced speech. It's simply a regulatory obligation. We require many things of our licensees, just as doctors are required to do things and sometimes things that they may even go against their conscience. But it's a privilege to be a member of a regulated profession. You do have certain higher duties to the public and obligations to uphold laws and the rule of law. And uh, I've been uh, disheartened by, I think, uh, a, a, a loud but very much a very minority vo uh, viewpoint on this. And I should say, because I don't want to sound too pessimistic, I've also been heartened by what I think is really the overwhelming support we've received for it once, once it's been explained.
Yeah, certainly. You can see that in uh, social media. Well, voices on both sides have been very active. But uh, I think uh, from from what you can see as it unfolds is the controversy surrounds around that one term of promote. And since then, the Law Society has released a further clarification memo, um, which makes it clear that it's not about compelled speech or anything like yeah, that. It's, yeah, that's right. But, um, you know, as a... As a uh, do you have a concern that those who see this as, as something political, that the pendulum could swing the other way, and then if a different group of benchers were elected, it could, um, again, assuming that this is a political issue, that the political spectrum could shift and maybe be counterproductive in that regard? Well, I, you know, I hope not. I think, I think most of the benchers, our current benchers, um, saw saw the merit in this as part of a broader um, strategy to combat something that I think everybody agrees with. Right, um, and the evidence so, supports. And, the, and it's, it's evidence-based, and uh, uh, I don't really see it as a political thing, frankly. I see it as something that is the right thing that we all take on in this society to, to respect human rights and to speak out when we see discrimination. Um, you know, I had uh, you know I've, I've I've had a lot of talks with lawyers across the province about this over the last year or so, and as recently as as Monday, I was in Hamilton, and a couple of benchers got up and wanted to attack me for this statement of principles, and they say, you know, you don't trust us, or just wait, everything will be fine, and I go, well, I you know what, I think we have to do better than that. I don't think it's you know I don't think. You don't look back and say after the U.S. Civil War, oh, you know, just be patient. Mm -hmm. um, we we are we have to lead on these issues. We are the we are the legal profession. We are the ones charged with upholding the rule of law. And if we don't lead on these issues, who will? That's fantastic. Um, so, on this, where did it all start for you? Uh, what got you into <laughs> law in the first place to eventually be sitting here today in the treasurer's office at Osgoode Hall? Um, boy, that's a tough question. I, you know, I, I grew up in a family um, that was uh, 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 an academic family, very politically um, active, a um, lot of robust discussion around the, the, the dinner table or the breakfast table about things that were going on. I was the youngest of five and um, my big brothers, you know, took me to Vietnam War demonstrations as a kid. Um, I got interested then in the law. I so I, I, I watched uh, Perry Mason. I was I'm just you know old enough to remember the old black and white Perry Mason shows, and I think I sort of had it in my mind that I wanted to be a lawyer. Did you um, think it could ever go another way? Was there a crossroads in your life where you thought, you know, what I could have been? Yeah. Yeah, well, well you, you, you don't know this, but uh, when I was a teenager, I was going to become a horn player, a French horn player. I, uh, I played the French horn as a, as a kid, and I was very good at it. It's amazing, because uh, you're now yeah. their third guest who has very accomplished musical right. roots. Okay. Um, yourself, uh, Justice Cromwell, right. and... Uh, uh, Brees Davies. Right. Yeah. I, I, that's why I heard the I heard the Mozart clarinet concerto at the beginning of Brees. Is, this, is she a clarinetist? Right. She is. Yes. Okay, well, you could play a Mozart horn concerto for me. Uh, I um, no, I was a very good French horn uh, student in high school, and I actually uh, left high school in Ontario after grade 12 to go and study in the States. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I did that for a couple of years. I was a... Uh, I, I, I was in the performance program in Indiana University, which is a great music school. I was studying with the greatest horn teacher in America. But after a couple of years, I started to sort of question it and wonder whether I wanted to do something else. So I came back to Toronto and I freelanced and I went and did a BA. Do you still play at all? Occasionally. Yeah. You, you, you got to play regularly to keep <laughs> up your chops. So the last time I did that was about five or six years ago. I took me a few months of diligent practicing every day to build up my strength to play. But uh, so I, I thought I was going to be a horn player. Um, and when I finished my BA, which took me a few more years because I was, I sometimes took fewer courses than I should have because I was getting work playing the horn. Um, I thought, well, what am I going to do next? I took the LSAT and uh, thought I, I did surprisingly well on it and uh, got into U of T law school. And I thought, well, I'll go to law school. And uh, I didn't know much about law other than 
criminal law. Mm-hmm. I sort of knew there was this whole thing of criminal law, and I always wanted to be a criminal lawyer, as I thought, when I was in law school. Um, and in fact, I did become a criminal lawyer for my first few years in practice. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, yeah. I did very much, yeah. yeah. I was, uh, you know, everybody has a lot of lucky breaks, or I, well, I shouldn't say everybody does. I have had a lot of lucky breaks. Um, uh, when I was in law school, um, I worked with, uh, I was Marty Friedland's research assistant, who was a great oh, criminal right, law professor. Very famous criminal law professor. And uh, um, at a certain point, for, I had a fortuitous meeting um, kind of through him where I met Morris Manning, who was a great uh, criminal lawyer in the city in the, when I was graduating, which was in 1984. And he took me on as his articling student. And those were the days when he was representing Dr. Henry Morgenthaler. Oh, wow. And so I spent the next four years working with, uh, with Morris and spent a lot of time on Morgenthaler, but a lot of time learning how to be a, a criminal lawyer and being in the trenches of criminal law. You must have some lessons that have carried on through the years that you've learned during that time. Well, for sure. I mean, one of the first things we talked earlier about media was, you know, we were, uh-huh. it was, and I was, it was just Morris and me. Uh, I was the student and, you know, the the press were calling every night and we were, they were there in the courtroom and so on. And so right away I was um, exposed, you know, to being cautious about being with them in the in the media, uh, but direct and but direct, you know, and, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, Morris uh, was a, a, still around. He's a, it was in those days handling that case in the early days of the charter. He was extremely courageous, mm-hmm. uh, and he taught me a lot about you know being a being a courageous, zealous advocate mm-hmm. and believing in your client and the, the the many different ways in which you can represent your client. And I learned an awful lot from that. It was an exciting time. One thing I've noticed, um, you know, I I happen to see a lot of criminal lawyers in uh, my day to day. And there seems to be a trend of um, underdogs Mm -hmm. and uh, people who uh, really feel like, you know, uh, they're intolerant of bullying and um, that sort of imbalance. And I I certainly see that with the initiatives that you've uh, spearheaded as treasurer. And I'm curious, you know, uh, are there any particular um, things that you've been especially proud of, um, perhaps as it relates to access to justice and getting legal representation of those people or other things during your term as treasurer, maybe even before, that that you just, you'd like to be as part of your legacy? You know, I try not to think about legacy items. <laughs> I just, I'm just trying. I just keep saying, let's just get things done. Um, you know, we, uh, I've done a lot of different things in the access to justice space over the years. Um, I've done some big cases pro bono. Um, one of my big losses, uh, which I'll, I'll, someday I'll get over. Um, <laughs> in the Supreme Court, but, uh, uh, you know, working with Pro Bono Ontario was very significant. Setting up law help centers, these law helplines was really important. Um, the work here uh, at the Law Society is, is kind of tricky because you're the regulator, you're not a service provider. Um, but one of the things that I'm really proud of having done in my two years as treasurer was to have us re-engage in legal aid. Um, the Law Society, as you may know, um, basically set up legal aid in the 1960s, uh, funded by the province but administered by the Law Society, and it stayed that way until the late 90s when there was another big crisis in funding and some real challenges with with government funding and the profession not getting adequately compensated. And so following a report, um, Legal Aid was overhauled and it was set up as uh, Legal Aid Ontario, which is an agency of the province. And so the Law Society gave up running Legal Aid. But we still provide names um, we, uh, for th- uh, three places on the board of Legal Aid. So we're very much a stakeholder, and of course, all services provided by Legal Aid are provided by our licensees. And there's been a lot of concern, again, in the last eight to ten years around what directions Legal Aid is taking, um, questions about um, increased roles for duty counsel and full-time counsel. There there have been questions raised about the clinics and the efficiency of the clinics and the merits of the clinics. Uh, and 
Um, I have views on those things. Um, I've been a great supporter of the legal clinics. I think they're extraordinary, and we have to be very careful about uh, protecting the independence of the bar and the certificate program as well. But I felt the Law Society should be playing uh, some role in those discussions. Um, It shouldn't just be a discussion between legal aid and, say, the the people who are vested in the trenches, like people like the Criminal Lawyers Association, um, that... Uh, not that it was ever intended to be adversarial, but it seemed from time to time to be a bit of an us and them view, and same with the clinics. And I thought uh, that we as a leader and as a serious stakeholder uh, should be playing a role, a constructive role, in promoting legal aid and enhancing legal aid and making sure it works for everybody. And so I set up a working group uh, that uh, chaired by John Callahan, who's a great believer in legal aid. Uh, and we had a number of benchers, who, all of whom were very knowledgeable about legal aid, and they came out with a report a couple of months ago that provided a blueprint, blueprint for us right. as the Law Society to play a constructive voice in promoting legal aid, um, in commenting on legal aid. Maybe sometimes it'll be a constructive criticism voice, and other times it'll be a constructive cheerleading voice. So we're going to be holding symposiums on legal aid. We're going to be more proactive in thinking about uh, who should be on uh, our representatives on the board of legal aid. We're going to be providing more avenues for communication between licensees and organizations and Legal Aid Ontario. And I think that's a, a really good blueprint for the future for us um, in in reestablishing a voice. Oh, I think in that's legal great. Aid. Yeah, it's great. The you know, and, and certainly you you make a good point that as a regulator, it's not really the role of the law society to to delegate um, legal services um, throughout Ontario. But certainly, these types of initiatives, like changing the rules on how one can represent someone or what role um, paralegals and or articling students can play in that, and perhaps opening up, I, I think it, um, it it definitely would contribute. And, and add certainly, as you say, to clinics and and things like that. Um, so on on the topic of of articling, um, articling certainly has always been an essential part of the law society, uh, with the training of lawyers and ensuring competency. It seems as though we're moving, um, to me anyway, moving away from a lot of that education and 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 uh, putting it more towards um, exams. And I wonder, do you see what's happening with the um, LPP and perhaps even with the Ryerson um, Law School that has just been uh, approved by convocation? Um, do you see a return to that, perhaps in a different 2.0 sort of way? So the, the licensing issue is one of the most challenging ones we face um, yeah, for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is sort of the political reasons within the organization and among the benchers, just a wide range of views around what our licensing process should look like. But it's also a challenging thing for us in meeting our mandate. Um, historically, the Law Society was an educational institution. Um, you know, the law schools, the professional law schools in Canada only really began to de- be developed in the 50s and 60s. Um, and that's when um, the Law Society got out of the legal education business, other than for a while we had a bar admission course, which was like a six month post law school, you know, cramming course with a bunch of exams. And we've always had articling, which is more of a transitional training course. Um, but articling, of course, is is offered by whoever offers it, and and the challenge we've had, and it's a, it's emerged in the last decade or so, has been that we just don't have nearly enough articling positions for the people who want to become licensed as lawyers in Ontario, and. Uh, that's due to a number of factors. It's due to the growth in the country. It's There have been some new law schools uh, that have opened up, but not that many, actually. Uh, it's been due to immigration, foreign-trained lawyers who are coming, and many of them come to Ontario disproportionately uh, and want to become licensed to practice here. Uh, and the, the more recent phenomenon has been many uh, Canadians going abroad for legal education. Um, they go to England, they go to Australia, they go, some of them go to the States, and, and then they come back, and they're all coming here too. And so that's raised for us the issue of the utility of articling. 
uh, and what our what our transitional training, if any, should be. Because the Law Society Act doesn't talk about transitional training. It says our mandate is to ensure appropriate standards of competence and conduct for the legal profession. And so what we have to be able to say is that we have a process for admission that uh, we can comfortably tell the public gives us some assurance that when we give someone a license uh, that they're competent to practice. Um, and that calls into question all of the requirements that we do. So um, we had a, a big debate about six or seven years ago about articling and whether articling should continue. Um, we decided that it should, but that we needed to have some other option because there aren't enough positions. And so we created the law practice program at uh, Ryerson, which Ryerson offers. It's our program. Uh, and there's a similar program offered in French at the University of Ottawa, um, which is an experiential learning program, simulated tasks. Um, and students who either don't get an articling job or choose not to article can choose to take what we call the LPP. Um, it's a four-month program. We've developed all sorts of advanced teaching methodologies to make it not a, not a cram course in memorization and exams, but actual experiential learning. By all accounts, it's an excellent program, and it covers the whole range of practice. Um, students then do four months as a placement somewhere. Um, but the challenge there is finding the placements, just like it is for finding articling. Um, unfortunately, a significant number of those placements are either unpaid or underpaid. Uh, so that's, uh, it's, it's not exactly a leveling thing because those who take the LPP are going to spend another eight or nine months without an income, many of them, whereas articling students typically have an income. And when you compare that to articling, you have to ask yourself what articling is. Um, I articled, as I mentioned, with Morris Manning. He was a criminal lawyer. I learned a lot about criminal law. Um, I learned a lot about trials, uh, but I certainly didn't learn anything about how to do a real estate deal or how to incorporate a company or family law or estates or anything like that. Um, I would say I had a wonderful experience, but it didn't train me to, to have all of the competencies of a lawyer. Some people have a similarly wonderful experience, say, in a big firm. I now work in a big firm. We do a very good job of giving you a first-year experience for continuing to work in a large firm environment. Mm -hmm. But we don't give you any uh, training to set up your own practice or to be a criminal lawyer or to be a real estate lawyer. Um, and other people have a lousy experience right. in articling. Um, they're, they're, they're cheap labor. Mm -hmm. uh, they may learn very little. They may, as we've discovered to our, to our chagrin, many of them are seriously exploited. Some are subject to harassment and discrimination because they're very vulnerable. And so we are asking ourselves, what is the right uh, role for us to ensure competency? Right. That's an ongoing, long discussion. It really is. And I would have loved to have wrestled that to the ground <laughs> in my two years. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we'll wrestle it to the ground in the next two years. No. Um, I was one of the people uh, five or six years ago who actually dissented from the recommendations that were approved. I thought that we should get rid of articling um, because I was concerned about a two-tier track. And that's another problem we have is that, uh, like it or not, um, the, the students in the law practice program are disproportionately racialized, uh, you know, and that, you know, of course, supports the findings of our challenges report. Um, and many people are choosing not to take it because regrettably they see it as a stigma that you take you took the course because you couldn't get an articling job that's not always true but um, there's a stigma about that and so we're not even getting the numbers of people we thought would take it in the course so th I think that really calls on us to ask ourselves about what is the right approach that that would be fair to everybody well for what it's worth I mean I I was very skeptical of the LPP program when it was first proposed and I've got a complete 180. I've since mm -hmm. become a mentor and I see Great. the value and uh, I think it's uh, one of the best mm -hmm. articling experiences yeah. one can get now. Mm -hmm. And in fact, seeing a lot of young lawyers come out of it, they're often at a far 
more advantageous position than their mm. contemporaries because right. they have a more holistic approach, particularly as it relates to business and understanding what it means to start up a law practice, whatever area that may be. Right. Um, and it seems as though the placements are improving. So, um, yeah, so yeah, I was, no, I was I, totally I, wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I wouldn't say I was totally wrong. I thought we should do a short practical training course. I, I was skeptical of uh, four months, and I, I'm still uh, uh, have questions about the placements mm-hmm. and the utility of the placements, or, the, or maybe I should say the need for the placements. But I certainly think there should be something that teaches people about the business of law and gives them some broad sec broad cross-section of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what uh, those of us who wrote the minority report several years ago recommended. So maybe there's somewhere in between. But it's a very challenging thing. You know, there's, you know, as I mentioned when we first started this topic, even politically here, there's a lot of a, almost a romantic attachment to articling. It's been around every, just about everybody did it, especially benchers. They're you know successful lawyers, and they all, you know, you still hear that. Oh, we could we should never get rid of articling. And I, you know, called them on it a bit and say, well, you know, you've got to look at things more objectively. Um, but legal education's changing too. You mentioned sure. you know there's the proposal for Ryerson. Um, you know I graduated from law school over 30 years ago, uh, but I teach in law schools and I see the evolution of training in law schools. There is more, there are, there are more opportunities for experiential learning that law schools are offering. The Lakehead model is an interesting one that we just opened four years ago, or Lakehead University opened with, with our support which uh, has what we call an integrated practice curriculum. So you spend half of your third year in a work placement and they have more experiential courses. And all we require of those graduates is that they then pass our our two exams. Mm -hmm. They don't have to article. Um, Ryerson is proposing a model that would have students in their third year also do a placement for half the year rather than than, you know, sit in the classroom again. Well, it's good to see everyone pushing uh, different possibilities yeah. and seeing what different um, a- approaches could could make yeah. and opening perhaps uh, other ventures' eyes to these possibilities as well. Yeah, and it's 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 a difficult thing, I think, even you know, for me too, because while I admire what Lakehead's doing and I'm all for experiential opportunities. Um, you know, I also have a lot of respect for the law faculties and the the emphasis they place on the intellectual side of law and the intellectual rigor of law because, you know, well, when we all get out in the trenches, there's a lot of other stuff we do. Um, you know, thinking, learning how to think like a lawyer, as banal as that sounds, there is some real importance in the in having the intellectual rigor of uh, digesting cases, being creative, uh, being able to write well, being persuasive in whatever whatever area of law you practice, yes. and and we don't want to we don't want to lose that. It's sort of like the the point about technology, right? At the end of the day, we have to we have to retain our intellectual intuition and our creativity. No question about that. So. As a longstanding bencher and then treasurer, uh, you've seen firsthand what it takes to become effective within the law society, both in voice and action. And I wonder, what advice uh, would you offer to a lawyer in Ontario who is considering running for bencher? Not just, I'm not talking about election advice, I'm referring more to what do they need to know going into it? Um, and how would they be able to navigate the bencher system to the most effective way possible? Well, the first thing I'd say is run, do it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's been one of the most rewarding things I've done. You know, we practice law for years and years for our whole career, but um, being engaged in in other areas of the law and being engaged in the profession and the policy is one of the most rewarding things you can do. It's intellectually invigorating. It's exciting. Um, uh, to be in a leadership role. And so the first thing I would say is go for it, run. But bear in mind, it's time consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, there you, to do it right, you really have to commit uh, a certain amount of time. You, it will uh, have an impact on your practice. Um, but you know you can you, you can still certainly practice. I would say when I was a bencher, 
it probably was 20% of my time or so, maybe a little more, depending on what I was doing. Some years were busier than others. Uh, so you have to remember that, that it's just another add-on, um, and you're going to work that much harder. Um, but uh, if, you, if you get elected, um, be engaged. Um, uh, try to get on, you know, obviously you, the, whoever the treasurer is would put you, it was going to spread the committees around. It's you, we, we work hard to try to get people to be engaged and be engaged in things that they want to be engaged in. Um, and uh, listen, and listen to the profession. Um, and one of my big themes and all the time, and I've been here, it'll be 11 years when I leave in, in, in June, um, has been about change. You know, asking questions, asking what the what it, what what the right thing to do is. Look at things through the lens of the public interest. Look at things through the lens of access to justice. Look at things through the lens of uh, of uh, equality, diversity, and inclusion. Look at things through the lens of indigenous peoples. And are we doing the right thing? Um, look at it through the lens of the lens of the of the. The, the law students who are the ones who are struggling and need the most help, or the lawyers who need the most help. Because all of those things are the ways in which we meet the public interest. Um, so that's what I would say. I think that's yeah. great advice. Yeah. And what would you say to your successor in June? What What's the note that you're going to leave in the, uh, <laughs> in the desk at the end of it? Uh, I don't know. I, I haven't thought about that. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, I would say press on. Um, uh, I, I, I've firmly believed in bringing things forward, um, letting letting the debate happen, let people discuss things. I've got some of the scars from that, but uh, but I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the fact that we're 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 moving forward and we're changing because if we're complacent, um, if we put things aside and shelve things, um, we will lose. Our, uh, our position as a, as a self-regulating profession. We have to be proactive. And what then, my final question to you, what is your uh, primetime commercial to Ontario? If you could have every Ontarian know about what the Law Society's role is or its importance, um, what would you try and get across on the Stanley Cup final game? I'm thinking, you know, of a line like, we're here for you. Right. Um, you know, there's that perception that lawyers are a self-interested, self-aggrandizing profession. You and I know that that's not true of most of us. Um, and that uh, we really, you know, we are a profession full of, of incredibly committed, hardworking, conscientious people who, who went into the law to do good and to help people. And I think that's, that's the message I'd want to convey. Well, Mr. Chavis, I can't thank you enough for taking time today to your very busy schedule. But in June, hopefully it will get a little bit better and you'll have time to spend some nice time in the summer. Great. Thank you very much. My pleasure.